Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This is a pre-recorded show which will be uploaded for your listening edification on the evening of Monday, August the 31st, 2020. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 19th post-COVID show, A New World, But the Same Place. So stay tuned. But first, as we do before every Bringing Light into Darkness news and analysis show, we first go to war. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gattos. Good evening. We now turn to the content of tonight's show. Last week, our focus was on the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and the disturbing reality under both the Obama and Trump administrations of the United States and UK complicity, and according to the UN, in creating the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. According to the United Nations Development Program, Nearly a quarter million people have been killed directly by fighting and indirectly through the lack of access to food, health services, and infrastructure in Yemen. As a result of our military sales, arming, and training of the world's greatest human rights violator, Saudi Arabia, of the dead, 60% are children under the age of five, accounting for 140 thousand deaths since 2015 if the war had ended in 2019. It has not. This show will rebroadcast on the last Monday of August of 2020. We wish to pay tribute to Black August, a co-op special recognition celebration event this year, and we wish to commemorate how prison and becoming imprisoned can become a political and an important tool to criminalize principled struggles against an unjust status quo. So tonight's show will focus and feature a critique of the disenfranchisement 
of African Americans through the criminal justice system and the disproportional criminalizing and the, the disenfranchisement of African Americans throughout our history. So as part of the new segment of the program tonight, I wanted to feature some empirical statistical information that reflects the, the discrimination and disproportional incarceration and criminalizing of African Americans. To start off with, you can find the sourcing for all of this information in great detail at pedrogatos.org. Many of these statistics come from the Bureau of Justice. I wanted to start off by just sharing, in 1988, there was a study that indicts the Dallas County criminal justice system. This was from an article by Ray Herndon from the Dallas Times-Herald of August 19, 1990, a front-page article entitled, Race Tilts the Scales of Justice. The study of 1988 cases discovers Dallas County criminal justice system more severely punishes killers and rapists whose victims are white than those that are black or Hispanic. The rape of a white woman received a median term of 10 years, while if the victim was Hispanic, the median prison term was five years, and it was two years if the victim was black. If we really believe that there's no such thing as a lesser human being, a belief that is a prerequisite for an anti-racist culture, then the sentencing should be equitably appropriate for the loss of another human being. And so the question, does one life have a greater value than another in our criminal justice system, was uh, addressed in a January 8, 1984 article in the LA Times by David I. Brook, B-R-U-C-K, entitled Gray Areas in Colorblind Justice, in which the findings included the taking of a black life, even by another black, was one-tenth as likely to be punished by death as the taking of a white one. Yet a black who took a white life was five times as likely to receive the death penalty as a white committing the same offense. The whole criminal justice question should be put into the perspective of with less than 5% of the world population, the United States had over 2.2 million people or 24.4% of the 9 million folks that were uh, imprisoned worldwide. And this was as of 2004. This was as of the 21st century. From 1980, we had some 580,000 people arrested for drug abuse violations. By 2004, that number had more than tripled to 1,745,712. This is U.S. state and local arrests for drug abuse violations. The Bureau of Justice Statistics is cited on the sentencing project Facts About Prisons and Prisoners, which I downloaded back in May of 2004. It's important to look at the economic and educational profile of the incarcerated. So 68% of state prison inmates in 1997 had not completed high school. Across all racial groups, prisoners are from the poorest sectors of society. 72% of prison inmates and 60% of jail inmates have not completed high school. Many are illiterate. This was sourced from the Bureau of Justice Statistics in 1987. This is who is incarcerated in a disproportional fashion, the, the disenfranchised. So when we look at the who gets targeted, who gets arrested in this drug-related arrest that's, that jumped up to the 1.7 million by 2004, 81.7%, uh, 1.4 million, were for possession of controlled substance. Only 18.3%, though, 
were for the sale or the manufacture of a drug. In other words, if you study the findings, you find it's not the drug pens that are getting arrested, the ones that are dealing the drugs, it's the low-level users that are getting arrested, and way disproportionately, the African-American low-level users. So you may say 2004 was 15 years ago, and the laws have changed, and we have drug courts and those types of ways in which to circumvent a final conviction for these drug offenses. But that still does not eliminate all of the people, disproportionately African-American, that got felony convictions and therefore have since had great, great difficulty in accessing the right to vote to this day. So this explosion of drug arrests that occurred between 1980 and 2004, a lot of it had to do with law changes. And Congress adopted an Anti-Drug Abuse Act in the fall of 1986 that included mandatory sentencing laws. The law included new federal mandatory sentences for low-level crack cocaine offenses. Defendants convicted with five grams of crack cocaine were subject to a five-year mandatory minimum sentence. It took 100 times more powdered cocaine, namely 500 grams, to trigger that same penalty. In 1986, before mandatory minimums for crack offenses became effective, the average federal drug offense sentence for blacks was 11% higher than for whites. But by 1990, the average federal drug offense sentence was 49% higher for blacks. Further, 1994 legislation further prejudiced the the African-American incarceration situation. So when we look at the incarceration for crack cocaine, it's also important to look at Well, what percentage of whites and blacks and Hispanics use crack cocaine? And according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, in a 1999 publication that they addressed that subject, population estimates in the household survey on drug abuse, they estimated some 971,000 Americans used crack cocaine in 1998. Some 49% of them were white, 34% were black, and 17% were uh, Hispanic. The 20 years post-1986 act that we described, drug dealers were still not getting arrested in this drug war. According to Mark Maurer in The Sentencing Project, in a piece written July 5th, 2006, The Disparity on Crack Cocaine Sentencing, more than 80% of the defendants prosecuted for crack offenses are African-American, despite the fact that more than two-thirds of crack users were white or Hispanic. Data from the U.S. Sentencing Commission documented that 73% of crack defendants had only low-level involvement in drug activity, such as street-level dealers, couriers, or lookouts. But when you look at the rates of incarceration for the crack cocaine criminal offenses, it's highly skewed. In fact, incarceration rates by sex and race by mid-year 2004, again, according to Statistics from the U.S. Department of Justice, April 2005, said that one in every 138 U.S. residents were in jail or in prison. By male and race, per 100,000, 717 per 100,000 were incarcerated that were Anglo for African Americans. 4,919 per 100,000, or 6.9 times greater for African Americans, and 1,717 per 100,000 for Hispanics, which is two and a half times the rate of whites. 
according to the Stanford report of May 25th, 2005. Again, these more detailed bibliographical references can be found on the website at pedrogatos.org. But about a third of black male high school dropouts aged 22 to 30 years were in prison, a third by the year 2000, in prison or jail. In contrast, only 3.3% of white male dropouts in the same age were, were behind bars. That is a 10 times greater incarceration rate for the same type of educational profiled black male versus white male in the United States, 2004. Regarding black felony disenfranchisement, 1997, in a study suggests black male prison rate impinges on political process, the Washington Post put out an article January 30th of 1997 in which they indicate 1.46 million black men out of a total voting population of 10.4 million had lost their right to vote due to felony convictions. So when you look at young black males, young white males, and compare those indices, again, from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, mid-year 2004, among males aged 25 to 29, 12.6% of blacks were in prison or in jail compared to 3.6% of Hispanics and 1.7% of whites. Uh, that's one out of every eight blacks at age 25 to 29 in jail, that a rate 7.4 times higher than whites and 3.5 times higher than the Hispanic rate. And finally, when you look at the economic inequality, it persists after release from prison for ex-felons. And this is, again, from the Stanford Report. This is an article called Higher Incarceration Rates Harm Social Stability Scholars Claim by Lisa Trey. T-R-E-I, back on May 25th, 2005, quote, because steady employment is an important step to criminal desistance and incarceration undermines steady employment, incarceration may be a self-defeating strategy for crime control. If there's a conviction that things are not operating in the equally, that systematically doing harm to the African-American communities, the war on drugs is a central element that the system is operating in an unfair fashion in that we're not giving people the tools that provide them a way out of a life of crime. And to put this all into final perspective, when you look at these incarceration rates that are so disproportionately impacting the African-American community, in 2004, the incarceration rates for blacks was, was 5.8 times higher in our country then in 1993, apartheid South Africa. And that's from the Prison Policy Initiative. So we celebrate Black August by acknowledging these empirical observations here well into the, you know, into the 21st century as an indication that despite whatever progress we're told we have made in civil rights for African-Americans, you know, when is progress a lack of progress? And this is the whole notion of determining whether black lives matter. They don't. If they did, these types of inequities would have been corrected long ago. Uh, we, we turn now to our interview with the esteemed author, Bruce Franklin. We interviewed Bruce in a pre-recorded interview on Friday, 28th of August, for broadcast on Monday, August the 31st. What follows is that interview and dialogue. 
Okay, so with that kind of background, setting the stage for our interview and dialogue with the esteemed author, Bruce Franklin, I want to, first of all, welcome you, Bruce, back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you, Pedro. <laughs> Always good to be here. Well, let me just tell our, our listeners, good listeners, who they're listening to. This is Bruce Franklin, a cultural historian and scholar. Dr. Bruce Franklin is a prestigious author, written 19 books. I've actually read several of them, and they're a range of topics, which has always been very impressive to me. The most recent one we actually did a show on, it was your most recent book in 2018, Crash Course, uh, From the Good War to the Forever War. In 2018, I believe that was published. Books on uh, and studied on prison literature, marine ecology. One I'm very fond of is The Most Important Fish in the Sea, the Manhattan. That was some years ago. Basically, the number of books I think that you've written are some 19 different books. And you also frequently write for Counterpunch, other progressive sites, and I came across a piece that you wrote just this past month that I wanted to have us focus on a little bit, at least elements of it. Which side are you on you know, with the pending election occurring or coming up and such? In the article, one of the things that you make very clear is how important history is, but that it's not really all that important unless you tie it into the present as to what can be used and learned and in order to steer our future in a healthier direction. Can you just speak on that broad topic first? Just all of your recent work is so rich in history. What is the importance of and what elements when we're talking about in today's world here where we have the protests going on with the Black Lives Matter and the issues of the increasing you know, disenfranchisement or disproportional disenfranchisement of, of African Americans. How do you attach the importance and significance of some of the historical lessons to get us to see the truth of what's going on? Well, it has to do with being an American in 2020 and understanding that the fights that are raging right now have always been with us, that America itself is a history of contradictions going all the way back to 1619. It's contradictions between those who want to extend human rights and democratic rights and those who want to extend their power over other people. And I mentioned 1619 because this is a colony in Virginia where we have documents that were really very progressive, challenging the rule of the king, stating the rights of people, human rights, democratic rights. Of course, they were for the white property owners, but it, these were very progressive documents at the time. The very same year, two ships arrived with slaves, black slaves. So it became a slave colony. The very same year, they began the genocide of the native people of the area. Mm. So there you have it. And you, we, we reach one climax in the Civil War between these two sides. And we thought that the forces of light had, had won, that we abolished. We had these wonderful amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. We abolished slavery. We declared that 
all the citizens of the, the country, whatever race or they were, had the same rights. And the male ones of a certain age were all entitled to vote. That was Reconstruction. But as soon as the federal troops were withdrawn, there was a reign of terror. They overthrew the progressive state legislatures, which were multinational throughout the South. And they turned these very same words into the opposite. They used the 13th Amendment, abolished slavery. They used some wording from that amendment to re-enslave all the black slaves and many of the free black people mm-hmm. by criminalizing them, which is not you know, what the framers were abolitionists intended. And then the Supreme Court upheld all these laws which defined behavior, ordinary behavior of people, of the black people, as criminal behavior. You, if you were staying in one place, you were loitering. If you were moving around, you were committing vagrancy, rude and illicit behavior, all kinds of things. And that they were able to re-enslave all the, this is the free people in conditions considerably worse than the old form of slavery, mm-hmm. and much more profitable right. than the old form of private slavery. So there are many lessons to be learned for this. In your articles, when you talk about the conditions being worse than they were under slavery, most people would take a step back, but you in your article indicate that black convicts who built railroads in much of the South had, once they started working on the railroads, their life expectancy was only a couple of years. It was two years. Thank. Can you explain why it was? Uh, sure. Know? Yeah, go ahead. Because under the old system of slavery, the slaves were owned by people. They were investments like their mules and, and horses. They had to be mm-hmm. fed and taken care of and have their life prolonged as long as they could work usefully. But under the new system, who cared? Just work them to death and criminalize some more people and replace them. Nobody lost. It was a, a fiendish, diabolical system. And let's talk uh, about that a little bit more, Bruce, because I don't know how fluent you are in the history of it, but you're talking basically about prison labor, about people that were imprisoned, and then the, there were contracts that were actually made between vendors of sorts, rich, uh, I know I know sugar cane was, sugar land in Texas was one of those notorious examples, but uh, you're basically getting, when you say it's more profitable, you're implying that it's because the labor costs are so minimal. There were many forms, including, in many cases, the state provided the labor, mm-hmm. so it didn't cost anything, but we inherit a great deal from this. Because when slavery was being legitimized, when it was turned into big agricultural plantations, you know, for cotton and, and tobacco, there was a whole school of so-called science, American School of, of Ethnicity, which defined black people as not being human. They were animals, so somewhat like humans, but not quite. This is, that was the, what legitimized that kind of slavery. But what legitimized the new kind of slavery was defining black people as criminals. Mm-hmm. And that became part of American culture. It's there today. So mm-hmm. when Jacob Blake is shot in the back several times 
mm. apologists for the police say, well, he was a criminal. He mm. had a record. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the perception. That's, that's still with us. There's a continuity in the culture that came from the fourth criminalization of black people. We need to understand these things to know not just, you know, how politics work, but how people's minds work, why the majority of white voters consistently support the Republican Party. What's in their minds is that culture. And it didn't just come because they created it themselves. It came from them growing up as white Americans, basically white male Americans. Mm-hmm. Well, let's stay on this theme a little bit more about the subjugation of African Americans, because, you know, you talk about in your article, the black codes that, again, turn black people back into felons and enslaving them through that new form. But you also, in your article, when you're talking about the 15th Amendment, and which is, as you earlier indicated, is connected to the right to vote, and you're saying that the Supreme Court, and let me just back up for a second, because I think it is important, following the Civil War, there were promises of 40 acres and a mule to all of the African-American slaves that were liberated, which never materialized. Uh, But then you also say in your article how the Supreme Court basically, with their post-Reconstruction decisions, also lent towards the disenfranchisement of so much of the black population. And you talk a little bit about, for instance, the poll taxes, which is still, it's interesting that what was repealed in in many parts of our country was if you were a felon, once you completed your terms of service, incarceration and such, then you would get the right to vote. But then there were all the fines and things from all of these court cases and all that, which were just so, for so many, just so high that they were not able to be paid. And as a result of not having debtor's prison, you know, they were, they were free uh, as they should be. But they were, laws were created to deny them the right to vote unless they paid off those fines. So they kind of circumvented that. But tell us about the Supreme Court. Well- To make that real, what you're talking about, very, very important. Mm -hmm. Let's take the state of Florida as as an example. So they passed, um, in this post-Reconstruction period, they passed laws to disenfranchise the black people. And they had poll tax literacy tests, you know, where a black person, man, thinking the boat, had to interpret a passage to the satisfaction of a white man. But the legislature, actually the the man who proposed the law, said, look, the poll tax and the literary test eventually are going to be knocked down as unconstitutional. But if we have federally disenfranchisement, that will stand. It will not be knocked down as unconstitutional because it's in the 13th Amendment. And he was right. And the result is, Take the election of 2000, where the Supreme Court decided who won in Florida, and therefore the election. Almost 400,000 black people in Florida alone have been deprived of the vote by felony disenfranchisement. And uh, Bruce, we need to take a quick break for the cause here at 91.7 KOOP. This is bringing light into darkness. We will be back with our discussion with Bruce Franklin. 
right after this. <laughs> 